Hello everyone. It is my great honor and pleasure to host Kirk Bresnicker, uh, who is coming back to our podcast from Research to Reality uh, in our second quarter that is focused on uh, future of AI. Hello, Kirk. Hello, Dan. Thank you for having me back. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, you have since recently inherited uh, your role, new role about ethics in AI. Can you tell us a little bit about that role? Sure. You know, this is uh, this is really going back to you know, when I first came to Labs. Uh, we had our embedded writer, Kurt Hopkins, and one mm -hmm. day in 2017, he popped his head over the cube wall and said, "Hey, do you know?" what's the current legal standing of artificial consciousness in European and U.S. law? I said, no, I didn't, but I knew who to call. I called uh, some friends who were over at the Marcula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, mm -hmm. and it started a conversation. And at first, it was just us being interested and passionate about trying to understand the ethical uh, ramifications of our research. Uh, but more recently, it's become uh, really critical, in fact, um, critical in terms of um, competitiveness to mm -hmm. be able to demonstrate ethical behavior, ethical actions inside of AI applications. It doesn't matter if you're at the bottom of the stack or at the top, these are pervasive issues and our customers and governments and people all over are saying, okay, can you show, demonstrate these principles for mm -hmm. us. So for the last year, we have been working internally. Let's craft those principles, let's understand uh, and have a discussion, a broad-based discussion, about the impact of AI and the ethical considerations of the entire pipeline. It, it appears to me that everyone is talking about it. You, wherever you go on TV, uh, internet, wherever you look, you know, someone's talking about, why is everyone talking about ethics in AI? Well, I think there's a couple things. One, uh, we're just seeing now the, the real power of AI. You just think of, you know, nowadays you can walk into a country you've never been before and hold up your phone and speak into it and it will speak the language of the person you want to talk to. Mm -hmm. So those the, those simultaneous real-time language translation, that has been one of the things that artificial intelligence has been looking back, you know, back to the to the 60s. And suddenly now it's in everyone's pocket. Mm -hmm. So everyone's seeing the power, but I think that also brings the concern. Uh, you know, when we are applying AI, artificial intelligence, to things like healthcare or legal, uh, these are uh, medical, these are all um, areas where we have long established needs for ethical uh, oversight. And so the fact that it's an artificial intelligence, it makes us want to also understand how can we apply those same ethical principles when it's not a human anymore, it's an artificial intelligence. But I think there's more than that, and that is that especially right now, as fantastically efficacious as these technologies appear to be, um, they are also inexplicable mm -hmm. in that they consume huge amounts of information to create a complex model which produces fantastic results, but it's not auditable. You can't mm -hmm. go back the way you could go back with a, with a traditional algorithm and have someone go through and, and draw the flow chart and trace all the things that went into a decision. It looks like it's working, but you actually can't say why it's working. And that, I think, is giving people pause. Mm -hmm. I think the last thing that's really important for people, as we said, these are voraciously de uh, devouring information, and often it's information about us. And so that then raises the question, what information was fed, who, who gathered the information, how can we know that we are treating this information where we respect the privacy and dis 
dignity of the, every individual that went into creation of model, and it's, it could have you know long, long-term ramifications. So all these things combine to saying this is probably an area where we want to have a better understanding how we should behave, and, and purposely for us as as engineers, how should we as technologists should we be participating? Mm -hmm. If this is the key to fixing climate change or establishing you know great sustainable food production, then we owe it to the world to give our talent to these mm -hmm. technologies. On the other hand, if it's not going to be, if it's going to be used for unjust means, then we have to ask ourselves, should we be contributing? You gave some great examples, starting from the phone, which you know is concern of all of us. You gave many other examples, but can you tell us a little bit more about what are the consequences? Why is this important? If we don't do that, if we spend our time on something else and not on this, what will happen? Well, I think one, one concern we have is, will we actually create systems um, that produce unjust results? One of the things we have a bias for is the computer told me so. It's a confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I ran it through the computer, and the answer is you don't get a loan, or you don't get parole, or you don't get this, this healthcare service. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why we want to really understand having a conversation with the people who want to apply these techniques to real-world human-centric problems and understand, is it appropriate? I know it's going to give you, it could give you a very efficient result, but if it's efficient and unjust result, then having it be more efficient in executing it is actually less just. So mm -hmm. understanding how we can contribute to that, how we can have that conversation about when these technologies are appropriate and what safeguards need to be put in mm -hmm. place. And sometimes the safest thing is to choose another method. Everyone has been talking about the concerns of ethics in AI. But are there any benefits that AI can offer from the perspective of ethics? Oh, I, I think so, in that um, having that ability, if we work on the technology to provide that control and provenance, in that, that case, you know, we, we have the image of Lady Justice, right? And the, mm -hmm. the avatar is, is blindfolded with the scales up. Because we want to have that impartial assessment now, if we actually have created a system where it is impartial and transparent and explainable, in which case we're saying, okay, you know what, I see the results, here's the conclusion reached by the AI, if I can then uh, explain that and we can all see how it happened, mm -hmm. then there's not a human bias that has been placed in there. So that could be the potential benefit, we hope, that we actually have that kind of blind justice. But justice has to be blind to status not to inequity, you know, so that is one of those things we have to understand. Am I enabling a system that perpetuates an injustice and then gives it now the stamp of approval of the computer, the mm -hmm. accuracy, right? Is that being accurate in an unjust solution is not a, not a virtue. Um, so understanding how we have that, again, that conversation to get the benefits of taking humans out of the loop when we need to have that provable mm -hmm. um, equity in reaching a solution. Let's talk a little bit about technology. What are the components of this ethics? Is it fairness? What are the aspects that, that how do we do that? How do we implement it? Sure, we, we talk a lot about, the first thing is, is we do want to make sure that they're human-centric, mm -hmm. that we really think about 
the ramifications uh, and uh, put the human, whether that is a concern of privacy, uh, whether that is a concern of, of equitable access. So we always want to have that human mm -hmm. as in the top of our mind when we're choosing, uh, choosing and talking about these technologies. Uh, beyond that, we want things that are robust, right? That actually we can understand and, and use those same hazards-based safety engineering principles we've done, you've used traditionally in engineering like in public sector engineering, in power, in energy, in transportation. And I think we want to apply those same techniques to make very robust systems. Robust in that we can rely on them. If I want to use AI in order to have a super efficient power grid that can really take every advantage of non of renewable energy that mm -hmm. is intermittent and uh, helps to shape demand, I have to be able to trust that it will always be there. So making them robust that, but also robust to attack. Robust that I can't have someone who is going to come in and uh, because they have access to the model can engineer a workaround so that they can engineer so that you know, they aren't recognized as a person, that there are classes that the camera won't see mm -hmm. uh, in Intruder because they put the right crazy pattern on their clothing and it fools the AI. So making systems that are robust to attack throughout the pipeline, whether it's the data ingest, the model creation, the model distribution, or the inference over those models, mm -hmm. how can we make those things robust? I think the last thing we want to also think about there is sustainability. What is the, what is the footprint and as we're creating these models, we want to be accounting for that entire energy footprint. How much did it take me, energy take me to collect all the data, to then process the data, to create the model, to distribute the model, to inference over the model, and at the end of the day, am I making a more sustainable world mm -hmm. or not? Because if something's not sustainable, then we can't afford everyone access to it, and then that would violate our human-centric principles. You reminded me of Chandrakan Patel. <laughs> he likes to measure everything in joules, including ethics, probably. But as you are implementing this AI, it runs on some stack from hardware, system software, middleware, applications, etc. Do you need to make sure that all um, of these layers are ethics proof? I think we want to understand every layer. Yes, so the short answer mm. is yes. As I'm collecting data, you know, how am I collecting data? Am I collecting data equally? Am I excluding certain groups? Is everyone who needs to be represented in data represented? And that's, that's, gonna, that's not just a yes or no, that's a conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, the second piece, having gathered this data, am I treating it responsibly? Am I making sure that it is secure? If I've went to you and say, I really want to have a great healthcare outcome, I want you to, you know, to put your data into the system, and I want to be able to guarantee, not by asking you to trust me, but by some provable cryptographic mechanism, you're going to give me this information, I'm going to tell you the only thing I'm going to use it for, and here's how I can prove to you, not ask you to trust me, but prove that that is what will happen. So, after we've gathered data, are we treating it and with respect and understand the rights of the individuals who contribute to it? And that could be in perpetuity. You know, if you have contributed information to a medical database, it may be your descendants who want to come back and ask about how that information was used. So this is a long-term um, requirement that we have to understand. So, 
So they no. say really end-to-end -end where there doesn't appear to be end well, I think because that, it can that, go and, forever. And that's one of these things. We're, we're used to coding, right? I write up my code or I design my circuit and uh, it was my ingenuity. I, and I started, with, I started with just a couple laws, right? Mm -hmm. F equals MA, uh, V equals IR. And then we build upon that and we construct systems and circuits and, and programs from it. And we can always trace back to that. Now we're talking about consuming all of this information pulling out a black box of inferences from it, and we can't go back and look back to what we did, or can we? That's sort of that question. And if we can't have that traceability back to those, those, those roots um, in the model, then we might actually have to keep the model, mm -hmm. the, the, the system that generated the model, the data that went into the model, the systems that collected the data, and we might have to keep that for a very long time. And so that's another one of those things for us to think about as I responsibly use this technology. What is different than the kind of engineering we've done when we engineered from first principles like, uh, you know, like Maxwell's equations down to circuit design or first principles in computer science those are all auditable. We can, we, can, we can go and look at the GitHub logs and see how we did the build process. This is not necessarily that case today. And I think that's part of the question. What are those design principles in that entire stack we want to work towards to allow us to have explicable AI? So let's say we engineers have done our job, we've done everything the right way. How are we going to govern that? What are regulatory compliance aspects? How we can make it happen? And that is, is something that's been very interesting. You know, increasingly now we're seeing um, requests for proposal, requests for quote, and inside there's an AI ethics clause. So our customers are coming to us and say, show us how you'll demonstrate adherence. Now, it turns out that regionally, there are lots of lists of AI principles that governments and non-governmental agencies have begun to, to write out. Uh, and uh, they all have a different flavor. Uh, and so what you would expect because AI ethics principles are, are, are based in the expectations of the culture in which they're written. And so it's not a uniform, there's not a global. Mm -hmm. you know, we have a uniform, uh, universal declaration of human rights from, from the United Nations. You know, beyond that, as we go past that, for the, the issues we're talking about here, uh, it, it, has, it is going to be localized. And so one of the things that we've been doing is to, to really to catalog all of those in region and we line them up next mm -hmm. to each other and they say, okay, in order to meet the requirement if this bid is going into to, to China or to Russia or to the EU or to America or Singapore or Australia, what are the requirements? How do the principles that we believe govern our behavior map into those? And so we've been collecting all of those as, as, as a mapping. Our behaviors and not only our principles, but how we actually live out those principles, and then equating that to the principles that are governing each individual jurisdiction. Okay, so engineers did their job, governments did their job. How are we going to police it? How are we going to enforce that this well-designed uh, and well-governed things in principle are now uh, being enforced by whom? Police? And I think that's, that's part of, uh, we can only, as engineers, we can only do so much, right? There, there is a point at which there is a bad actor who acts in bad faith, mm -hmm. and they say that they're only going to use it to, you know, to, for a very beneficent reason, uh, but it turns out that's not what they're doing. 
Uh, and so there's, there's, there is a limit to our ability. Uh, but I think part of what we, uh, we need to strive for are those conversations in, in big global forums and say, here's what we're bringing as technologists, and then have that conversation with a governance side, mm -hmm. with, a, with a civil society side. So what are, you know, we think, of, we think of the government, we think of industry, and there's also that other group, which is civil society, all those other mm -hmm. NGOs, and, you know, and they actually could greatly benefit from these technologies, but they're also a great voice of other concerns, concerns we may not have thought about. You know, so mm -hmm. that's part of that robust, diverse, human-centered engineering is having that conversation with someone who's in a very different sphere than you are. And so I think that's an, an, another piece of it. And also to you just continue to, to, to talk about how we see these, these uh, technologies in use. So demonstrating by our own actions. So at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, you know, we don't just produce products with AI or offer services uh, that build and allow others to create AI. We consume them ourselves as well. You know, mm -hmm. we have we have HR departments, we have marketing departments, um, and so part of this is also for us to demonstrate through our actions what we believe the proper uh, ethical use of these technologies really is. You mentioned multiple times conversations, but these were largely conversations among the people. How does a human uh, converse, communicates with AI, not just in terms of language, but in terms of decisions, behaviors, etc.? How do you instruct it? How you interact with it? Well, I think that's something that uh, our children will probably know much better than we know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right now, we know the halting interfaces that we have. Uh, it certainly is going to be, uh, it is an experiment that, that we will be performing on how these technologies shape and affect um, individuals. You know, we think of early childhood development and how critical language formation that first five years, especially just the first two years, mm -hmm. uh, and you think of the, the need to interact and, and what's been shown is if you miss that window, it's very hard to apply uh, remediations later on. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine how important uh, you know, a, a talking doll would be to a child uh, and to be able to interact because you know sometimes when parents come home, they've been working triple shifts, they don't always have that time. Now the, the flip side of that is you don't want, uh, the nightmare scenario is that what is whispering in that sleeping baby's ear is a large corporation that's telling them how to be a better consumer, as opposed to the authentic voice of that child and their culture. You know, the, the songs that I sung to my children are the ones that were sung to me. So you can see the possible benefit of these kind mm -hmm. of technologies in bridging those gaps, especially if they're made affordable, uh, but you also want to understand how will then they reflect the culture of the individual and how will that be manifest in that use of AI. So I think a big piece of the question here is how do we democratize not just access to AI, but formation and shaping of AI so that there is an AI augmented system that really reflects you know, the entire diversity of the human experience globally. And it's not just one robotic voice from here we are in Silicon Valley, right? Going out and colonizing the whole world. I want to know how we can give that technology so that we can have those authentic voices everywhere. Uh, I'm really glad you mentioned Silicon Valley, your heritage, etc., Because it brings the question of global versus regional. We want really everything to be ethical around the world. But the world is not the same, not necessarily that parts are good or bad. They're just different. 
So how can you take into account our desire to have globally ethical things while respecting regional differences? And I think that's where we do, we have an advantage. And, and there are communities that we, I know you and I both work with. Um, I work a lot with uh, the World Economic Forum and they have partnered um, uh, very early on with the, with the IEEE. You know, and to create that, that global conversation. Not that it all has to be the same. You know, we don't want a monotone. We don't want a, 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 that just one, one voice. But we do want to bring the diversity of all of our membership. The IEEE, you know, the world's largest professional society, global. And that means that we have access to technologists with global voices who can actually bring their experience in too. So I think participating in those global discussions and then then driving it locally. And I think that's where, you know, that partnership, World Economic Forum, branches all over the world, IEEE, branches all over the world, coming together and having those discussions, I think that's part of how we do it. But we should anticipate, as, as technologists delivering these, um, there won't be, and I don't think we would want it. Uh, we don't want one global, unified, sole AI technology, we want to have mm -hmm. it be reflecting the diversity, and that's, that's you know, diversity is a, is a strength here, the diverse voices of the world yep. reflected in those diverse artificial intelligences and how they're applied. Given the state of technology, do you think that there are any limitations today, especially in terms of silicon, that if you had better technologies that you could do much more? Uh, I, I, I certainly think that's the case. You know, it's, it's one of these things when, when you have new technologies, you think of your early radio and spark rat transmitters. And yeah, that you could send, suddenly you could send signals wirelessly. But then you go afterwards, you find out, well, yeah, because you were shooting huge amounts of RF energy across the entire spectrum mm -hmm. just to get a little spark over here. I think in some respects, we may look back on this time when we were devouring all of this information and, and pushing all of those flops into all those GPUs that we might look back on this and say, hey, you remember when we used to think that you had to have a giant data center full of GPUs to, to produce a, a model? So I think as we get to that, that greater understanding, especially as we drive these technologies from the initial ones that have worked, and in some cases, look back to further further back in that technology and thought stream mm -hmm. and look at some earlier principles, we may find that we actually will end up having a much more efficient way to generate generate the models, to inference over the models, and, and also have them be you know, what we desire, which are these explicable models, these explainable models. Mm -hmm. So I certainly look forward to seeing how we continue to improve that performance and that uh, efficiency and in the end, that will make it more applicable to more technological uses and to be able to afford to push it out into you know, where all that data is going to live. The, the petabytes, exabytes, zettabytes, yottabytes of data we're creating as a species filtered in, understood by AI, not just in the centralized data center, but all out in all of those things. And you've been even contributing under auspices of rebooting computing and IRDS. Do you think that uh, based on this road mapping, this bright future is any closer to us? Uh, so I think that looking at the roadmaps, um, I think we're at, a, we're at an interesting crossroads. And I think the GPU itself is, a, is, a, an extra, is that first example of seeing something application specific and it's precision, right? It was really good. And so we finally, we figured out how to make cost effectively 
a really good uh, piece of, in, of, of kernel that can then be used both for inference and uh, in a different way used for uh, training. I would expect that as we see more and more of that process equivalent, so that there's a pretty competitive market now there's no one leader mm -hmm. in process technology that we'll continue to see what we've, we've seen already in, in the IRDS, in the IRC, ICRC, um, that understanding how we, how we take those last best transistors and use them in a much more clever way. And so I think, especially with the IRDS, the International Roadmap for Devices and Systems, that evolution of understanding is not just about the semiconductor technology, it's about that whole stack, including of the systems and then of the applications you run on top and that need to co-design up and down the stack. Mm -hmm. I think for, for applications as pervasive uh, and as consumptive as these are right now, that's a great opportunity for that kind of precision of design, that co-design up and down the stack. I was going to ask you much earlier about the trust in AI, but I left it for the end when I talk about personal experience. Would you trust AI, for example, to record us here as opposed to the uh, living person? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a risk and reward, right? You know, the chances are the AI that's built into these autofocus cameras is going to do a much better job than if I was behind that lens because I'm not that good at it. Uh, and so that's, that's an example, I think, where chances are that is something that is going to be worth that trade-off. Mm. Uh, if it's going to be, you know, guiding the surgeon's knife, if it was operating on my heart, you know, I want it, I, I probably, that takes a little bit more uh, confidence. I won't mm. use the word trust, because <laughs> I think confidence is something we can demonstrate repeatability and mm. uh, trust is asking you to just trust me. And the problem with trust can be misplaced or trust can be uh, corrupted. Mm. Uh, and so I, I, I want to understand how we, how we get to provability on these things. Um, so I think it, in all these, it's a risk and reward. But again, that's the conversation that the technologists needs to have with the, with the application creator. Mm -hmm. And is this technology appropriate? Uh, and it's not just, does it work? Uh, is that, does it work well enough? Is it, again, our, to our, our principles of human-centered, responsible, robust, uh, you know, privacy-preserving, all of these things. So in the end, any of the technology we produce, these are tools, right? We've been producing tools since someone first picked up a rock hitting us another sharp rock and made a sharp edge mm -hmm. and extended our human uh, capabilities. These are tools in that grand tradition, but they're not always appropriate for every job and there are ramifications to their use. Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, I, I will take the reference to Sean as a, as a supreme compliment because we both respect him so much, mm -hmm. but that understanding of that footprint the footprint of our actions and how we as technologists enable, but we want to have full understanding. And, and sometimes you can't tell ahead of time. You know, when the same engineer who created tetraethyl lead and chlorofluorocarbons to create, um, democratize individual personal mobility and improve food and uh, pharmaceutical safety by giving cheap, in, cheap gasoline and, and cheap refrigeration, he wasn't thinking that he was going to open up a hole in the ozone or leave measurable lead in baby's teeth you know so you can't always predict it but when you have a conversation you're more likely and especially as we said with its conversation not just with government not just with civil society not just with the the people who come to you ask hey can you help me with this i want to do this 
you know, is AI, is AI the answer here? I think that rich conversation is where we can put ourselves in the best possible way to make a contribution that society really values. I usually end these interviews with questions around how technology could be forced for good. And I think you gave uh, numerous examples. The other question I end up is about inclusion and diversity. Same thing with bias, you addressed it. The very last question is, um, how do you wind down? I mean, thinking about AI could be tiresome. What do you do to uh, stop thinking about AI? Uh, so I, uh, I am the chief cook in the kitchen at my house. Uh, and so for me, uh, cooking, uh, especially with uh, good beer, whiskey, wine, brandy, I think they all go together for me. Uh, I, I love all of those. So that, for me, that's it. Also, very loud, very fuzzy, lo-fi garage band music you know something that's really 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 loud that's the other thing for me that i just listen to that get all the fuzz out uh clears the head and, and gets you amped up especially when you're making a lot of food for a lot of people great great job thank you very much sure, thank uh, you. anytime great to have you here